Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Overeaters Anonymous Vision for You speakers meeting this morning. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Sunday, July 22nd. Welcome to everyone. The OA preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. The sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Melanie to read the 12 steps. Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie. I'm a compulsive overeater. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Melanie. I will now call on Deb W. to read the Twelve Traditions. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, A Vision for You. Um, my name is Deb. I'm a compulsive overeater from Michigan. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, 
Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse finance or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized, but we may carry service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. And thank you, Deb. And good morning, everyone, once again, if you're just joining us. Welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, Vision for You. Today we have a speaker's meeting. A speaker's meeting is where we have invited a recovered compulsive overeater to the line to share in a general way what she used to be like, what happened, and what she's like now as a result of the program of recovery. And today we are very grateful to welcome Marsha to the line. Good morning to you, Marsha. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You may begin. Okay. Hi, my name is Marsha. I am an abstinent compulsive overeater. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and um, very honored to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, it's a real honor, so uh, thank you very much. Um, I have been in the program since March 15, 1993. I have been abstinent since April 19, 2009, and by the grace of my higher power, I have lost 140 pounds. And um, it's just been a wonderful, m- magical, uh, evident of life-affirming God thing for me and uh my higher power is god i'll say that and uh i am kind of clinging close to god these days Uh, i really really need to to be there i've got some serious things going on in my life right now but um i'm living through it abstinently because that's what i believe god wants for me today so i suppose i'll begin uh at the beginning um I was adopted as a newborn. I was the first child of my parents. And 16 months later, they adopted another baby girl. And um, they were great parents. They wanted to give us everything. And for the most part, I had a wonderful childhood. I was a chubby child. I was uh, probably four or five when when I said to my father that I wanted to be a ballerina. And my father said to me, well, you have to be skinny to be a ballerina. So, okay, i that was the first inkling that uh, there was something wrong with me. My father made an observation about my looks. And, and so, all right, well, that kind of passed. But um, I loved to eat as a child. 
I love to eat as a child, and the, a deadly combination is having a child who loved to eat and a mother who loved to cook, and she was a really good cook. Um, my earliest memory of a mental obsession was for her, her brownies. I mean, it's crack in a jelly roll pan for me. I would sit at the table, and I would I wait for the brownies to come out of the oven. Then I would will the brownies to cool so my mother could put frosting on it, and I could lick the bowl. And while my mother insisted that I share with my sister, I wanted it all to myself and, and would try to figure out any way that I could keep my sister from having any. I wanted it all. Uh, I remember when I was small, I climbed into my father's chest of drawers to find the orange-flavored baby aspirin, and I downed a handful of baby aspirin. It tasted good. Uh, my first lie about food was in kindergarten. Uh, my parents were Jewish, and for kindergarten, I went to um, a Jewish uh, a Hebrew school, uh, and uh, it was just for that kindergarten. And while I was there, there's a, a there's a holiday called Sukkot, and we had a structure built out in the parking lot where the kids would go and eat the meal in the Sukkot. And while I was there, uh, well, beforehand, I had to tell my teacher what I had. And uh, I told my teacher that I had a cheese sandwich because I wanted chocolate milk. But actually, I had a sandwich with salami on it. So uh, I sat there in the Sukkot eating the salami sandwich under the table, sort of, my hands, the sandwich nestled under the table while uh, I could drink my chocolate milk. And uh, no no one caught me, but I was barely five years old when that happened. I think the first time I stole food, it was in summer camp. Uh, a girl had this bubble gum, and she her parents kept sending it to her, and, and she had it, and I would... When, I would, when people would leave the uh, the cabin, I would go into her cubbyhole, and I would uh, I would just help myself to her stash of bubble gum. I was caught and made to apologize, but still, it was clearly clearly uh, a lot of problems there, wanting food and taking it at any cost. Uh, at eight years old, my parents sent me to a doctor who prescribed amphetamines. So I was eight years old taking uh, one of those little orange triangular pills. And uh, it didn't last very long. My parents decided that after a while that they needed their daughter to sleep. And uh, I wasn't getting a heck of a lot of sleep at that point. So uh, the pills went away. and uh, But they did manage to get me to a commercial weight loss program where I would go in and I would pay and weigh and sit around with other kids my age and, and uh, you know, talk about food. Of course, nothing was clicking with me. Um, I felt fine. I, 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 I was like, I, I, there's nothing for me to fix. Okay, yes, I'm a little chubby. Okay, yeah, there are some kids that make fun of me. I, I was doing pretty, pretty well in school. I just liked food, you know. I had friends. I loved to sing in the choir. I loved to act in the school plays. Um, I swam happily in the in the community pool and in our family's little pool. I, I, I knew I wasn't the most pretty girl in school, um, but 
my parents despaired of my eating. Um, their uh, parents would comment on it, and uh, but it didn't really matter to me. My my parents made these attempts to put me on diets, and they didn't work, and I didn't care. You know, I enjoyed my life. I was having, I was okay. And then seventh grade came around, and I started to go to a middle school, and it pretty much marked a turning point in how I felt about myself. Um, in middle school, the bullying really began in earnest. I mean, they let me know how fat I was on a daily, even an hourly basis. I heard all kinds of slurs. I heard the fats, tub of lard, cow, Henrietta Hippo. There were pig snortings in the hallway, cow mooings. People would stare. Uh, they would point and laugh and whisper things. I mean, they would even... Even if they weren't talking about me, I would assume they were talking about me. In gym class, the other girls would peek under the trampoline when I was on it to see how far it would stretch the canvas. Uh, at lunch, I was yell people yelled across the room, save some for us, when I would be standing in the lunchroom line. At one point, I ate lunch in a bathroom stall just to save myself the humiliation of being in the lunchroom again. Um, in the hallways, I'd been pinched. I've been poked, I was hit, and in one class, somebody put gum in my hair. In another class, someone laid a part of a peanut butter sandwich on my chair for me to sit on. Um, it, was, it was a very humiliating and painful time. And um, I, I think you can imagine about that time, I was really starting to care about my weight and what I looked like. Um, I wore sweaters in 90-degree heat so I could hide the, my fat arms. I was wearing holes into the crotch of my pants because my thighs were rubbing together. I didn't go swimming at swim parties, and I loved to swim, but I, was, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to wear a swimsuit or to, to, uh, to expose myself to any more humiliation. There were no cute clothes for fat girls back then. Um, I was actually wearing my father's work shirts and uh, size 22 jeans. I didn't sing in the, in the choir anymore, and I didn't act in school plays anymore. It just became harder and harder to put myself out there. Um, and, I, and for a while there, I didn't even want to leave my house. I didn't want to leave my house to go to family. I didn't want to leave my house to go out any, any, to dinner with the family. I didn't want to have anything to do with anything going on outside of my house. Once at my grandmother's house, I had handed my four- or five-year-old brother a piece of candy, and my grandmother snatched it away from me, telling me, don't give that to him. Do you want him to look like you when he grows up? Um, I remember that my mother reacted very badly to that. Um, she, she got very angry at my grandmother, and I was wondering at the time, well, you do this too. What 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 is she saying that's different than anything you were saying? But, you know, I guess... She's a mom, and she's protective, and that's what moms do. But uh, for the most part around that time of my life, food and, and isolation and fantasy, getting lost in fantasy, were the three-legged stool of my existence through my teen years. Um, my family pretty much became secondary um, when it came to food. I would come home from food, or excuse me, <laughs> I would come home from school on the bus, and I would literally run home. 
and race right into the kitchen. And the first place I would stop would be the pantry where the cookies were. Or if there weren't any cookies there, it would be the cereal. Or if it wasn't cereal, there would be something else in the house that I was going to eat. And I would sit myself down in front of the TV set, and I would eat, and I would eat, and I would eat after school until I was stuffed. And then dinner would come along, and I would eat dinner. And then a couple hours later, I planted myself in front of the TV set and started eating more and more. And it was an all-day thing. I ate morning, noon, afternoon, evening, night. I ate five meals a day, mostly sugar. Uh, if there wasn't sugar, it would have been chips or it would have been something else. It would have been uh, bread and toast and, and whatever wasn't moving in the pantry or the fridge. I couldn't stop, and I couldn't stop from starting. I felt like crap. I looked like crap. Life was crap. No one understood me. I didn't trust a soul. My parents didn't know what to do for me except offer me another diet. And my home was a lot of fighting. My mother would say, you're going to eat yourself into oblivion. And I know she said that to me on numerous occasions, and I didn't care. It was the only comfort that I had. It was the only pleasure that I had, food. And I, that, that explosion of sugar and sweetness in my mouth, that crunch, that gooeyness, that bite after bite, and, until I was sick, until my stomach was beyond full. But at least I wasn't feeling the pain of being who I was, of being what I was. Um, I, I prayed to God for relief. I prayed. I, I, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I, why couldn't I get this? Why couldn't I figure this out? It's so simple. Just stop eating this stuff. Stop eating it. You'll lose weight and life will be better for you. That's what you need to do. You need to lose weight. So try, get on this diet. Try that diet. Try restricting. And it, and it just never could stick with me. And I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I tried praying on my knees. It didn't work. Nothing. I cried myself to sleep at night. There were days at school that I was constantly on the verge of tears. I was alone. I was miserable. I questioned my existence. I wanted to die. I hated my life. And that the food was the only thing that calmed me down. It was the only thing that made life bearable, helped me to feel nothing. Uh, and then I could forget, I forget the pain, the humiliation, and I would get that sense of ease and comfort I couldn't get anywhere else with that food, whatever it was. Uh, I mentioned that my family became secondary. I mean, their needs and their wants and their desires, I didn't care about. I was a, pretty much a, a selfish, selfish kid at that point, and um my father was ill with kidney disease. He was uh, one of us. He was a compulsive overeater. He, um, in 1971, had a, an operation called an intestinal bypass. It's, di it's different than the gastric bypass of today. I mean, the intestinal bypass is a bit more severe. It's where you actually um, uh, take the, lower, the large intestine and hook that right up to the bottom of the, the stomach so everything you eat goes right through the intestines and out. And at the point, th that point, it was a big joke amongst all of the uh, patients at the time. They were they had their own little support group amongst themselves. And, you know, they, they, the big joke was that they, you eat and you go to the bathroom. You eat and you go to the bathroom. 
And um, uh, unfortunately for a lot of these people, this uh, was quite uh, a problem. Uh, did somebody hear? Did anyone hear that? Marcia, you're back on. Just continue. Okay, sorry. Okay. Um, so my father, uh, over the the next few years, well, he had lost some weight. He was actually at a at a well, relatively healthy weight for him, but he was starting to become ill, and uh, they didn't know what was wrong with him. And he'd go to the doctor that had performed this operation, and he said, well, it's just a side effect. Um, your skin coloration, that's just a side effect. Don't worry about it. But as it got progressed and he was getting more and more disoriented and sick, they, we, we took him to another doctor, and, and it found, we found out that his kidneys were failing. And um, so he spent a great amount of time in the hospital while first trying to find out what was wrong with him. And then when they finally did find out what was wrong with him, it turns out, okay, they, they were going to try and put him on a renal diet so he could build his kidneys back up, but eventually his kidneys did fail and he had to start going on dialysis. Now, by this time, I was about 13 or 14 years old, and um, I was, to say the least, a selfish, self-absorbed teenager, and I think that kind of goes with the territory anyway, but I... I didn't want to go to the hospital to visit him because it was in interfering with my television watching or my ability to eat what I wanted. Um, my father was, was getting uh, dialyzed three times a week for six to eight hours of stretch. And, um, and I, I, I was pretty, pretty self-absorbed, I mean, I, to say the least. Uh, the arguments around my father's illness and spending time with him and I don't want to go, I want to you know, stay home, I'm tired of it, it was all very thoughtless and inconsiderate of me. Uh, my mother was the target of my wrath. Uh, my brother and sister were hostages to my selfishness and inconsideration. In my family, when I hurt, everybody knew it. Everybody felt it. Um, when food, when somebody would eat a food in the house that was a leftover that I was targeted, it was targeted for me. God help them if they ate it before I got it. It was mine. And uh, I do remember one point, my father say, "Well, your name wasn't on it." And uh, then I started putting my name on things. Not that it helped, but. I was kind of a smart ass, and and uh, so I decided to test the theory. At any rate, um, so he uh, he when he finally got through his uh, uh, his illness, he he they managed to get a kidney transplant going on him, and uh, that was when, my senior year in high school. I started college a semester early, and um, I came home, and they had a kidney for him. And so he went off, and he got his kidney transplant, and I went back to school, and then I came back, and and um, I was uh, I was graduating high school still, and he couldn't make it to my high school graduation, which was heartbreaking to me. 
but um, but life went on, and, and he finally got out of the hospital, and four days later he was dead. He had died of a sudden massive heart attack. And um, that was pretty a, much a devastating blow to me. Believe it or not, I was I was very close to my father. He was a very funny, wise, loving, affectionate man, and he was... Uh, he was, of, of the two parents, I was closest to him. I love my mother dearly, but my father was was a very quiet, wise, and, and, and loving man that I, I just, it just was a complete body blow to lose him. And so in the interim, I became something of a co-parent to my siblings. Um, lost without my father, I was in the grief. There was a lot of eating going on with that, a lot of stuffing my face. Um, a lot of fears and resentments going on with food uh, in college. But I also began to notice how normal people ate. That was very interesting. They left portions of their food on their plates, my gosh. I mean, when they ate cake, they would push half of it away and say things like, oh, that's too rich. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea because I was so busy growing up stuffing that food, that kind of food in my face by the by the platefuls over and over again I didn't understand it but I also really wanted to lose the weight so I tried this newfangled thing in college called anorexia it lasted about a week it didn't work very well for me because everything was looking good uh, so I created my own diets I mentioned uh, uh, to a lot of folks here the Snickers diet I was on I had one Snickers a day it was 1200 calories and therefore and I wouldn't eat anything else that day and I would lose weight well that was an utter failure um, I managed to try yet another diet and it, it was pretty popular at the time and I did lose uh, about 50 pounds or so and um, that that wasn't that, that, that it wasn't healthy. It, of course, it wasn't a healthy diet for me, but um, I did manage to keep it off in my senior year. But I still had a lot more to go. I think I was down to about 185 uh, with that diet, and um, I felt pretty good about that. But after college, um, I left college. By the way, I didn't finish it. It was one of my one of my many character defects: is not finishing things that I start. And I came home, and I started a job, and the job was so dull and boring that I, all I did was to, to, to not feel resentment about this job that wasn't the, the big end-all, be-all job that's going to get me a new life and get me an apartment, get me furniture, get me a car. It, it, it was just it was an existence at that point. I was living with my mother. I was living with my, my siblings, and... Um, uh, my mother was this widow at 48, and she relied a lot on me. Um, and, and one might even say I had kind of been placed in the position of a spouse, but I had assumed that position. I, I often blamed my mother for, for being so weak that she couldn't do it by herself. I was the one who had to take over. I was the one who had to corral my, my younger brother and sister. Um, so I, I, I and I fought with them all the time. I fought with them like my I think my father would have wanted me to fight with them. My sister was uh, dating an alcoholic, and I was controlling and always trying to impress my opinions upon her about him and uh, what she should be doing with her life. I mean, she's she's a cute girl. She she can get out there. She can get anybody. She's a normie. She's uh, talk about being jealous of her growing up. She was beautiful, and uh, and I was this fat ugly thing. 
and and here she was she's wasting her life on an alcoholic what was she thinking and uh and I argued with my mother about how she was raising my brother my brother you know you know for my mom you know here's the first son in the family he's the baby of the family and the sun shined out of his ass and my god what is going on with my family what can't they see my brother is a brat and he really needs to be disciplined and and, and I absolutely despaired of my mother's inability to discipline my my little brother so um I mentioned that I had a series of jobs. The jobs were um, dull, dull, dull jobs. I hated them. They were unchallenging. They didn't pay well. They were not giving me the things that I wanted to have out of life. Um, I, I at one time had managed a retail cookie store, of all things, for a compulsive overeater to manage. Um, it's, it's a very, very interesting thing to be in a cookie store and be a compulsive overeater. Uh, to say I ate the profits would be an understatement. Um, but I did try in my 20s to do a lot of dieting and, and restricting, um, and they failed every, every single time. Um, I was actually working my way up to nearly 300 pounds. And at 30, I was living with my mother. I had no prospects for romance. I wanted it. I wanted to be rescued from this dull life, kind of like, you know, Deborah Winger, an officer and a gentleman. I would be a size two in order for Richard Gere to come and pick me and pick me up and sweep me away from there. Um, but, you know, that didn't happen. I wanted to be a mother. I was too shy and I was uh, so convinced. I was absolutely 100% convinced no man would want me. So I didn't try. I was angry. I was afraid all the time. I was self-centered, self-conscious, and inconsiderate to my family. Um, I didn't fulfill obligations to friends. Um, I, was, I was not available to anybody in my life, and all I wanted to do was eat. Um, at one point, though, I did get into another diet. Uh, I had some dietary success. Uh, with a, a commercial weight loss program, and I willed my way down about 135 pounds. Mind you, about f those last 50 of those pounds or so was done by purging. I weighed myself every day. Uh, I was looking good. I hadn't been a normal person my entire life, not since I was a toddler. There were guys at work that were starting to look at me. I was actually starting to feel feminine for a change. I'd never felt like a woman, really. Um, I was starting to dress nicer. I was considering moving out on my own. And then my mother died. And I think that uh, anybody, everybody understands the, the, the notion of self-soothing. And uh, when that happened, the food just started to come back into my life. The weight started to come back in my life. My brother and sister and I were all living together in my home. Um, it was chaos. My sister was married to this, the alcoholic, and she couldn't decide if she wanted to be married to him or not. Um, my sister and brother argued all the time, and I was caught in the middle. And these were very loud, loud arguments. My brother's rages would wake up our neighbors. That's how bad it was. Uh, it was a miserable time. The, the whole family was in just disarray, I mean, absolute, complete chaos. I was frightened all the time, finding myself 
uh, having taken the place of my mother, and I was failing miserably at this. Um, my weight was creeping up and up and up, and I was even though I was purging, the weight was still coming on. So I guess you can imagine the amount of food that I was eating, and I was just absolutely becoming desperate with with food. I was I was suicidal. I was I was de- depressed. I had a, I had a little dog that I had just gotten was only a, a two-year-old dog at the time, and that was the only thing that was keeping me from really seriously considering any kind of, of suicide. But the idea of leaving this world was much more appealing than being in it. And at that point, uh, my work was suffering. Um, I, I knew things were, were not right for me at work. I wasn't able to concentrate. I wasn't able to do work accurately. And so I went to uh, – I was on. I was actually one, one night on the phone with a dear friend of mine. I was actually sitting on the floor in the kitchen, sitting on the floor in the kitchen with the phone in my hand, and I'm telling my friend what was going on in my life at that point. And he said the, the best words a friend could ever say to another friend, so you need to get help. And that was it. That was the door. That was the first evidence of – the fact I didn't think God cared at all about me. I, I didn't think God cared at, at all about anyone. And I had pretty much given up on the notion of praying to God. But in retrospect, I look upon that time in my life as evidence that my higher power was throwing a lifeline to me. And I took it. I did take it. I, I took what my friends were, were, what he had said to me, and I did I had an employee assistance program. I I went to a counselor. The counselor diagnosed me as A, depressed, and B, that I had an eating disorder. And so that got me into an eating disorder unit, and the eating disorder unit said, you need to find an OA meeting. There are lots of great meetings in St. Louis, and when you're done here, you need to go there. And um, that all was a, a, a miracle that I will never, ever forget. Uh, and it will always be the point in my life when, when things started to turn for the better. So I got went to my first OA meeting in March 15, uh, 1993. And uh, lo and behold, one of my dear, dear friends from grade school was there. And I looked across the room. I saw her there. She looked at me, and she nodded and smiled. And I... I, I, I felt instantly at home, really instantly at home, because there was somebody from my childhood, and I had a great childhood, and there she was. And um, we talked afterwards, and uh, I went to a couple of more of these meetings, and then I, I went to a different meeting. And uh, the, the new meeting was a bit larger, and I was told specifically by the counselor, go to this meeting, go to the St. Mary's meeting on Sunday morning. And I did go there, and um, I, I started to really, okay, I really am at home. These people do understand what it is to eat like I do. Um, th- these people understand that, that they, they've eaten raw food too, that they've eaten burnt food, that they've eaten out of the trash like I have. They've eaten off the floor. Uh, they, they've hidden foods in closets and, and under beds and in the trunks of the car. Um, they, they purged. 
you know, I, I, I purge, I use Ipecac to purge. And these people knew what they were talking about. I found a group of people who finally understood what I'd been doing with food my entire life. I wasn't alone anymore. I wasn't the only person on the planet who did this crap. And that's exactly what I thought. I thought that I was the only person who did this and the amount of shame that's associated with that. They they were like, no, we got it. No, no, you're not telling us anything new. We 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 know. And it was such a relief. And I picked up a sponsor, and I began working the steps, and I began reading the literature. And and before long, within six months, I, I was, was starting to, to drop a few pounds again because all, a lot of my weight had come back after I had lost that 135 pounds from that diet program. Um, but uh, I, I started doing service. I mean, within six months, I was the group's intergroup rep. And then... Um, not long after that, they needed they needed somebody to do a newsletter chair. Hey, I've got you know writing skills. I can I can do that. I can be the newsletter chair. So I became the newsletter chair. And then you know a little while later, um, they needed some help at the convention, and and there was an entertainment committee, and and I, I asked the person you know okay well I I can help with painting things or building sets, but I, I became an entertain the I became part of the entertainment committee. And 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 the thing that I loved to do when I was a kid, singing, the the thing that I loved to do, you know, acting in plays, I got to do that again. Um, I I got out there and I, I and 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 just sang solo for the first time in years in front of people, and there was a loving group of people on the other side that smiled and applauded and hugged me, and 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 it was it was wonderful. It was a feeling that was indescribably wonderful. I found lifelong friends. I was losing weight. Um, I was, you know, volunteering for all these other service positions, trying to give back what was given to me. I was, I was going through a series of sponsors, and, I, and this physical recovery was coming. Uh, I, I, I'd managed to work through some version of my step four and step five. I sort of worked step six and seven. Um, I made a, a list of people I'd harmed, and I made some half-assed apologies to those I decided worth, were worth apologizing to. Um, it was actually the epitome of half measures. But I was home, and I was accepted, so I didn't need to do anything else besides show up. And whatever a spiritual condition was, I, I really didn't need to worry about that. I was showing up for meetings, doing service. I was committed to a life as a member of OA. God had brought me home until until I wasn't committed anymore, until it all became kind of boring and, and my wonderful friends became kind of boring and, and I began to resent meetings and then there were things outside of OA that I wanted to do instead of doing OA and, and, and I was doing service by the bucket loads and I was resenting it. I was about 205 pounds, somewhere in there and, and I, I'd, I'd found that, that little area of weight that I had stayed at for a long time because I, I was I was fine. I was home, you know. I didn't really need to worry about losing any more weight. I didn't need to worry about getting any more physical recovery because the emotional recovery was there, you know. I was feeling good about myself. And, and you know, I did have a connection to a power greater than me, sort of. And um, so, you know, after a few more years, it was like, okay, why, why don't other people step up and do service? I want to do some other things. And why do I have to go to this meeting? Why do I have to do that? And, and 
And I was beginning to think that I got this. What, what did I need OA for anymore? What did I need to be here anymore? I, I, I was beginning to think that I graduated. I really was. I, I thought that I had graduated. I didn't need to be doing this anymore. And I was hanging around with one or two people who didn't think they needed it anymore either. And rather than just just get that out with a trusted, abstinent member of OA, I just let it go on like that. And I continued to do service until I ate a cookie. And then I ate another, and then I ate another. So it goes without saying that I relapsed. Of course, it didn't start with the cookie. It started way before the cookie. It started when I stopped working the steps, when I thought I had it, when my self-will came came into charge again, and, and uh, I, I figured, I got this licked. I can do it. So I can tell you it is an absolute fact that I can state with 100% certainty this disease is progressive because as soon as I ate that cookie, this disease was back it was in charge. It took over my entire life for nearly the next four years. I was in utter and complete relapse. I didn't care initially. I really didn't care. Uh, I just, hey, I was normal. I didn't need to, I didn't need this program anymore. I could figure this out. And, and tomorrow, you know, if I didn't figure it out today, then tomorrow I would get it. Tomorrow I would start and I would, I would be abstinent and I would stop eating this food and I would only eat this food in moderation and, and, and it would be okay. It was all going to be okay. I'll figure it out. And it was day after day. I would go to the store and they had these cut pieces of sheet cakes that didn't sell and I would buy two or three of those because I was going to limit myself just to those. And I would have one today and I would have one tomorrow. But I ended up eating both that evening. And then I would get a gallon of milk to eat with that. And because I still had a gallon of milk left, the next day I, I would have to go in and, I, well, I have this gallon of milk. I've got to drink the milk, so I need to get this to drink the milk with. And then when the milk would run out, I would say, okay, I need to get more milk because I have this I have to drink. And then I would, it was a vicious circle night after night. I was in the local grocery store, I can't tell you how many times during the week, to pick up my fix because the sugar was back, the sugar was in my life, and I was packing on the pounds. I mean, the, I was back to 270 pounds within just uh, within the year. And I would have friends over. We would have parties. We would be drinking. We would be, we would be carousing and, and doing all kinds of stuff that was, you know, I, I wanted to be normal. And I forgot that there is nothing normal for me as an eater, as a compulsible reader. I am not a normal eater, never will be, ever. And um, so for the next few years, I, I kind of went to a meeting. I, I didn't do any more service. I was done with the service part. I went to a meeting. I just showed up. I was there. And I didn't really offer much. I hated being there. Um, and, and and the food was there, and people could see it on me. One person did talk to me in a meeting. She says, I know that you have noticed that you've been putting on some weight. Is everything okay? What's going on with you? And I knew that that happened in a way. I, you know, I, hey, that does happen. And I thought, well, yeah, everything's okay. You know, it's okay. 
Um, but still, there, there was one single person, a, a person in OA who has been around for a while, just about as long as I had been around, who would call me. And um, she's p- passed away. She passed away a couple of years ago, and um, she had more spirituality in her little finger than I had in my entire body. And um, she had been living with some physical disabilities, and but but really embodied a spiritual program of OA that that is an envy of anybody who knew her. And she didn't care when she called me. She she would call me and she would you know throw out the lifeline and say, Hey, how you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. Are you okay? Anything we can you know anything going on you know. And, you know, I would talk with her. I wasn't, you know, somebody who would just hang up and say, leave me alone. But, you know, I, 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 it was annoying as hell. I wanted to be stuck in my disease. And, and she was saying, you don't have to be stuck in your disease. And she didn't say it in that, those many words, but just the very act of her calling was what it said to me. And um, because this angel, and I can only call her an angel, was to me uh, another lifeline from God. I had my friend Dave um, over about 20 years ago who had thrown his first that first lifeline from God through Dave, and I got this other lifeline. And she said, you know, we love you, we miss you. And um, to me that was kind of a message from my higher power, telling me that he loved me and he missed me. So, eventually, um, for whatever reason, I started to listen. I started to listen, and in January of 2009, I went back to OA meet, to my OA meetings, and I put down the sugar again for the last time. And in April of that year, I put down the flour. The following March. Um, I prayed to uh, to my higher power that, you know, this isn't enough. I, I'm just doing the same thing I did before. I don't have a sponsor. I'm not working the steps. I really need to do something differently. So I went to a big book study at our local convention. And thank God, thank God, my higher power put somebody in my life who was amazingly available to sponsor. To, and I asked her if she would sponsor me. And she has this and I love her dearly for it. She has this shtick. You know, she tells people, okay, well, I'm not your friend. I'm not your mother. I'm not your therapist. I'm your sponsor. I expect you to work the steps, and I expect you to be abstinent. And that's what I needed to hear, and that's what I needed to have in my life. And in March of uh, 2010, I started working the steps for real. I started working the steps as they were intended to be worked. We worked a very, very thorough first step together, and I finally got it. I finally understood what it was. Yes, I kind of had a cursory knowledge of powerlessness, but I didn't realize that I had to admit to 100% perfection that I am powerless over food and that my life is unmanageable with it. So working the steps together, we worked it like the first 100 AAs. Um, I worked step one with her, and then we worked through step two. I 
Finding the Power Greater Than Me. I think probably my favorite chapter in the big book is more about alcoholism. I think that's the most amazingly profound chapter. In the, I mean, the, the whole book is profound, but to me this hits me right in the gut every single time. Finding a connection with a higher power um, was, you know, or, or recognizing that a higher power really did care about me. And, and I could only look back at the people in my life and the events in my life that got me to listen and got me to pay attention. And, and, and only thinking in terms of, okay, that is God. That is God to me. God reaching out and saying, I'm here. Don't forget, I'm, I'm here to help you. Don't turn away from me. So I didn't. And I, I did the third step on my knees in front of my home group. Uh, I worked the fourth step and the fifth step, some of the hardest work I've ever done. And they were thorough. They were, um, I'm sure there are things that I'm still trying to figure out that I've got to, to work on as, for, as far as fourth and fifth steps. Um, but I, 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 I was able to come clean with some very, very difficult subjects. Um, that I was not willing to do with previous sponsors, and um, I was told that hey, you know, if you don't, you don't put these out, if you don't get rid of these, if you don't clean this wreckage, this is the kind of stuff that you're going to eat over again because you're carrying that around like you're carrying around a weight. So in order to lose the lose this physical weight of 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 your your body, you're going to have to drop this the spiritual weight you've been carrying in your head. So with her, I, I worked step six and seven, and then eight and nine, and I was able to make some really amazing um, amends to people. I, I finally sat down with my brother and made some serious amends with him. And a lot of these amends were, you know, required a lot of cash. <laughs> um, I wasn't the most honest person, um, as a teenager, and and there were some things that I had to 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 compensate money wise, and I, I gave I gave money to my brother. Um, I have been giving money to my sister. I have been giving money to a, a several charities in the area. Um, there was a, there was a, a girl from high school that I had had hurt, and um, actually I I just I. I rejected her terribly, and, and, and it hurt her terribly. And I, I found her, I mean, with the help of my sponsor, I found her after I moved into my new place. I, I found her um, in the phone book, and, and, um, and I, was, I wrote her a letter. I told her, I don't know if you remember me, but um, I, I'm hoping you're well, and I'm hoping that you'll be, that you and I can meet and talk for a little bit. And I gave her my phone number, and the next day, the next day after I mailed this thing off, she called me. And um, we agreed to meet. There was some fear around this because I was a little concerned that she was going to, um, that she was going to latch on to, and, and try and make a, a friendship out of this, which was not the intention, not what I wanted to do. I wanted to make amends. I wanted to, to wish her well and, and Sincerely, from the bottom of my of my heart, hope and pray that everything is okay for her. 
and um, you know she lived a, a tough life. Um, she at, at 50 was a, had been a widow for 10 years, and raising three daughters, and uh, was having a little bit of emotional problems. And and I listened, and I, I but I also had made my amends to her. I made my amends, and I said I wanted you to know that. I know that in high school I didn't treat you very well, and I wanted to say I am very, very sorry and that um, you didn't deserve that, and I, I will never do that again, and I, I, I hope that life is good for you. And, and it was a really very good meeting. It was really a wonderful, good meeting, and I can't tell you how wonderful it is to walk out of a place and go, Oh my God! Thank you. I I I got this. I I, I got this taken care of. I, I I've I've managed to clear this out of my path, and then all these other things that I've been clearing out of my path. I mean, uh, some of them have been very very tearful, painful, but they have been the most elevating things that that have happened in my life that just lifted me up out of the muck and mire of my past. Um. And now I do uh, steps 10, 11, and 12 daily, and um, I, I talk to God on a daily basis. Um, I mentioned before that I was adopted. Um, that there are so many things that, that, um, that uh, I'm, I'm kind of mixing around here, but there, there are a lot of things that I'm doing today that I would never have imagined doing while I was still in the food while I was still in the shame of being who I was. At 300 pounds, I don't know that I would have done this. But um, in 2011, just this past November, the state of Illinois opened up its adoption records, its original birth certificate records to adoptees who are interested in, in learning who their birth parents are. Now, they had given birth parents the opportunity and the time to come in and say, no, I don't want this information released. But I, um, so I didn't know all this, but I was just taking my chance. I filled out the application. I sent in the check for $15, and I, I sent in a copy of my driver's license. I mailed it off to the state of Illinois, and um, a month later, I got my original birth certificate in the mail, and I learned the uh, name of my birth mother. Now, my mother and I uh, had, had gone round and round about my um, birth parents. She, um, you know, to say that that uh, you know Jewish guilt is is embedded in me is an understatement. And um, she would say, "You don't need to know her. I'm your mother." And I was absolutely, you're my mother. You will always be my mother. And and please, you know, I, this is just I just want to know where I came from. I just want to know my medical history. I just want to know how I came to be your daughter. And you know, she kind of got it later in life, but. It, but it still bothered her. It still bothered her. So there was a lot of guilt when I sent off this, this information and a lot of guilt when I got it, and even more guilt when I wrote the letter a couple of days later. I found my birth mother on the Internet. Um, I found her, and um, we uh, we managed to meet December of 2011. We met for the first time, and I'll tell you, if you're going to look for a birth parent or a, 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 an old person at a Cracker Barrel, you know, it's like looking for a needle in a stack of needles. There, uh, I did find her. We did connect, and I have her eyes. And then through her, um, I found my birth father. 
and I'm going there today because um, I have connected with my birth father. I, I met him in, in April, and we had an instant connection, and I've had an instant connection with both of my birth parents. This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. Um, these, the, my birth father had no idea that I existed until, until March when I mailed the, the letter to him. And, um, and he has pulled me into his life, and um, his family has, pulled, has welcomed me into their life. And his wife, who is currently dying of pancreatic cancer as we speak, um, has adopted me. So I'm adopted again, and I have three parents again. Well, I have two parents and a, and a step-parent. And it's been very, very difficult for the last uh, couple of days to deal with the fact that I'm going to lose somebody that I instantly fell in love with just a few months ago. Um, the miracle of this program is that I would not have introduced myself to these people if I had weighed 300 pounds. The miracle of, of OA is that by working the steps and trusting a higher power, um, I have been able to um, reconnect with my past and um my and, and connect with with people who absolutely pulled me into their family and um it, it was confusing there was a lot of guilt with it um i i dealt with you know i went to my parents graves a couple of times to deal with it and this is just an amazing thing my life is just an amazing thing today my life is just wondrous. It's, I'm abstinent. I've got a power grave in me. I've got wonderful friends. I've got a family in OA. I've got a family at work. I can deal with people at work without wanting to kill them, and that was a miracle. Uh, I, 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 people that I resented at work, I now love and, and enjoy their company. It's all because of this program, because this program taught me that I'm not in control that there's a power greater than me that's in control, that my resentments are going to kill me. My fear and my resentments and my self selfishness and self-seeking ways are going to kill me. And when I eat, I am not a nice person. But when I'm free of the food and when I'm working the steps and when I'm calling my sponsor every day and when I'm talking with my higher power, even arguing with my higher power, I am infinitely better on my worst day than I ever was on my best day while I was eating food. I am absolutely in love with being alive. I'm absolutely in love with my life and with the people that are in my life. Um, I, I can't imagine what my life would have been like without being a member of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I am currently doing service at um, the intergroup level I um, am our region rep. I am a World Service delegate. Um, I was um, proud, proud to um, vote for the newest definition of uh, abstinence in OA as uh, working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. I believe that is essential to not just simply arrest the illness, but in our case, if we can, possibly to try and reverse the effects of the illness. I'm not ready to die at 52. I don't want to die. I don't want anybody to die young because of this disease. And this disease has taken a lot of beautiful people from my life. 
And so I, this this program has has saved me in so many ways. Um, I am not the person that I want to be, but I'm not the selfish person that I used to be. Um, I am making progress every single day because I am connected with my higher power, because I am staying in touch with a sponsor, because I am working 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis, and because this program does work. And I heard a speaker say uh, a long time ago uh, on another uh, phone meeting that this program isn't for people who need it. It isn't for people who want it. It's for people who do it. And I can say absolutely this program works for people who do it, and it will work for anyone who wants who wants what I have. So I think I've just about covered everything, and uh, I will turn it back over to Leah. Thank you very much for the honor of letting me speak. And thank you so very much, Marcia, for your message of hope, your message of salvation, a clear illustration of the transformation of a life that's possible as a result of these steps. You know, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. That was very evident in your story, and we thank you for your time. Uh, at this time, we open the meeting up to any questions you may have. Uh, Marcia has agreed to spend some time on the line here responding to any questions. So if you'd like to ask a question of Marsha, anything she shared or anything about her recovery process, uh, you can press star 1 to unmute. Pose a question. Hi. This is Michelle, compulsive overeater from Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Marsha. That was an amazing story. I have two questions for you. Uh, the first, do you have a contact number that you would be willing to share? Um, and the second question, you talked about doing a thorough first step. Could you elaborate a little bit more on your process? Because you talked about doing that with absolute perfection. Thank you. Certainly. Um, well, by a thorough first step, uh, there is a, a book that is not OA approved that I, that I used with my sponsor. Um, but the, actually how we worked the first step was uh, for, the, for about three weeks, uh, every night I would alternate between the doctor's opinion and Bill W.'s story, and I would write each night about 20 minutes uh, alternately, alternate nights on, on one topic or one uh, chapter over the next, and uh, working through that, recognizing my powerlessness, recognizing my unmanageability. And then the other, um, uh, other non-book that I, I, I referenced, um, that was something that I worked in addition to that. Um, I covered essentially, you know, my relationship with my family, my relationship with food as a child all the way through an adult and how and you know, evidence of the unmanageability of my life throughout throughout the stages of that. And then um there is a a, a page in uh it's on actually ironically it's on uh step 6 in the AA 12 and 12 and it talks about only with the 100% admission that we are powerless um, at 100% perfection, uh, you have to uh, work step one. And um, a thorough step one, an absolute thorough step one that is done where you are completely and absolutely have no qualms whatsoever. There is not one tiny molecule in your body that 
will ever accept that you can eat normally, then you're, you've admitted you're powerless. If there's one molecule in your body that somehow thinks that you can eat normally, you will eat again. And I had to get that through my thick skull, and I've got a pretty thick one, that I am absolutely 100% powerless over my binge foods, and I cannot have them in any form. And that's what 100% perfection is to me. Oh, and I'm sorry, my contact number. Um, my phone number is area code 636-812-2509. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Michelle. Yes, thank you, Michelle, for the question and Marcia for your response. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Rita. Rita, go ahead. Hi, this is Rita from Nova Scotia, Canada. I don't have any questions, but I have to tell you, you inspired me this morning to tears, and I just, I thank you so much because, you know what, I don't want to do half measures. I want the whole piece, and thank you so much, Masha. Bye. Thank you, Rita. Hello. This is Yolanda, compulsive overeater. Go ahead, Yolanda. Hi, Marsha, and and everybody um, this Sunday morning on this meeting. Thank you so much for giving so much of yourself. And, and yes, your message was inspiring. And um, I don't have any questions. I just wanted to thank you. And also for reminding me of um, and so vividly explaining um, what happened before you took that first bite, that cookie, because I need to be reminded uh, of that because it could happen at any time. Uh, thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Yolanda. Yes, complacency is a, and denial is a deadly combination. Hi, this is Stu. Hi, Stu. It's Du, D-E-W. D-E-W, um, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Marsha, your your story was, uh, I mean, your experience was um, dynamic. It was uh, really hardcore. Um, I had two questions for you. One, um, I was wondering, what was the um, what was the highest weight you ever got to? The highest weight I got to was 294 pounds. Wow. Okay. And um, you mentioned in your story um, something about a three-legged stool, and I didn't. I'm not familiar with that terminology. I mean, I think I've heard of it, but I didn't um, understand what you meant by that. Well, in 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 OA, they describe the um, that recovery is a three-legged stool: physical, emotional, and spiritual. Um, when I was talking about the three-legged stool, I was uh, referring to, and I might have to go back and look at my notes. Um, Okay, I can't really find what I. Um, oh, uh, food, isolation, and fantasy. 
for me, uh, um, the food uh, I would I would eat, I would isolate, and I would fantasize. I would be at home. I would be writing stories. I would be drawing. I would be watching television. Uh, I would be eating. I would be uh, essentially out of creation. I was I was into my own head, into my own um, my own thing. It's what kept me from being there for my being available to my family. I didn't want to have anything to do with anybody, and so um, that's what I lost myself in. What in I called this three-legged stool of food, fantasy, and um, and isolation. And it's uh, no way to live. But I was creeping towards it uh, in, in relapse. Hi, this is Janice. Hi, Janice. Hi, Marcia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your willingness to share with such heartfelt honesty. Um, I heard you talk about how you used the tool of writing while you were working your steps and certainly your evidence of, of doing service. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you use the OA tools on a daily basis. Well, uh, I'll be honest, I don't use all the tools. I mean, I, I use the phone, I, I speak with my sponsor. I am a sponsor of a couple of people. Uh, I write every day um, for the most part. I, I will pick up something. I'll pick a piece of literature. I, I'll either pick up the OA for today. I'll pick up the big book mostly. Uh, I'll pick the AA 12 and 12 or the OA 12 and 12, and I'll find something in there that I will write about. So I use I use literature. I use um, the uh, the tool of writing. I, I do sponsor. I, I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. And um, let's see what else. Uh, I'm trying to think of um, – my action plan is, is really um, my, my, I call in my food plan to my sponsor every day, and um, my, my action plan is really just to, it, it, is just to um, do what I do on a daily basis, 10, 11, and 12, and, and, and to, to, to sit there and pray and ask God to help me um, to be of service to somebody today. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I know I, I'm trying to, to run off the tools in my head. Uh, let's see: writing, literature, action plan, plan of eating. Okay, the plan of eating is what I call into my sponsor. Um, I, I think that's. I, I I know that there's some I'm missing, and um, certainly feel free to um, to help me. <laughs> <laughs> meetings. I know you're well meetings. connected. Oh, yes, yes. Your I go to two meetings a week. I am blessed uh, to have two meetings a week that I go to. There's a, an abstinence first meeting um, uh, that I go to every Sunday afternoon. Um, I won't be able to make it today because I am going to Tennessee to um, visit with my my birth father and, and mm-hmm. his wife uh, for the next couple of days. I, I don't know if she's going to to live much longer than this, mm-hmm. but. Um, I'm going to miss that meeting. Um, I did uh, with the. I was led to to start a meeting in in my neighborhood because there was nothing available on Wednesday night in my neck of the woods. So I did start a meeting, and thank God that uh, it's it's a good meeting, a healthy meeting. And um, my sponsor was very wise in telling me to watch out and don't be a bleeding deacon. <laughs> So um, yes, uh, I, I do go to uh, two meetings. Typically, I go to two meetings a week, 
and um, uh, along with the service, I, and I was at the Region 4 convention last weekend, and I was program chair there and spoke a lot. I spoke a couple of times at the um, at, at that, and uh, it's just been a very fulfilling uh, existence, much more than I ever ever imagined. Mm, thank you, thank you very much, Marcia. Thank you, Janice. Yes, thank you, Janice, for posing that question. Yeah. You know, uh, our, the tools that Overeaters Anonymous speaks about, abstinence, sponsorship, making phone calls, attending meetings, practicing anonymity, reading literature, writing, having an action plan and service certainly sounds like things that, uh, Marcia, you do throughout your day. So, indeed, uh, those tools are coming into place in, in, your, uh, in your life of recovery. So thank you for your response. Janice, thanks for posing that question. Thanks. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Stu again. I just wanted to finish asking my question. Sure. <laughs> Marcia, um, you mentioned that in 2009 um, you had initially put down the sugar in, I, I believe it was January. And then I think in May you said you had put down the flour. When when exactly, um, you know, were you totally abstinent? Um, it was April. Um, now my abstinence has, has deepened over the last couple of couple of years. Um, I, I put down the sugar because that is my primary binge food. Um, that is the that is the end all be all of my binge food. That is my number one killer food to me. Um, the flour um, I put down, uh, stopped eating. Uh, April nineteenth, two thousand nine, was my first day without flour, without white flour. And um, since then, I mean, I had been still eating artificial sweeteners and things like that until March of this year. So my 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 food has been getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner over the years. So. Um, I consider April 19th, uh, 2009, as my abstinence date, but my my food has just been getting um, better in quality, more nutritionally dense than um, than what I was eating before, um, eliminating the the artificial sweeteners, sodas, and things like that from from my my food, and um, so so I, I would say that that it's just been continually improving but you know if I were to I would be changing my abstinence state every time I decided to eliminate a food <laughs> so I, I just I, I consider April 19th 2009 that is my abstinence date and 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 God has led me to I mean I had no idea that I could enjoy plain non-fat yogurt before I had no idea that that would be good I could dip an apple in plain non-fat yogurt and enjoy it I never thought in my wildest dreams that that would be delicious, but to me it is. Kind of amazing. Wow, that's um, that's good information. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Do. Thank you, Marsha. Mm-hmm. Just as the de- disease is progressive, recovery is progressive as well. As we know better, we do better. Mm-hmm. We live better. That is right. Anyone else? It's Wonderful nice question. And make those Sorry. suggestions too. I mean, um, my my sponsor is is pretty 
pretty good at understanding food and, and nutrition and, um, and, and, and not saying, telling me to do anything, but making loving suggestions. You might want to try this. <laughs> Would Marsha give her number? Yes, I can give it again. It is eight, uh, area code 636-812-2509. Thank you. Mind you, I will be on the road for the next few days. So um, after that, though, please feel free. Any other questions? Hello, Marcia. Please go ahead. Hi, Marcia. This is Margaret in Illinois. Um, I enjoyed your um, speech, uh, your speech so so much, and I appreciate it. And I'm grateful to hear it today. Um, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this. Maybe Leah does. I can't remember if this meeting is recorded or not. Yes, I think it is. Okay. Thank you. Yes. And thank you very much. It was very informative. Thank you, Margaret. Yes, indeed. The, the meeting has been recorded. In fact, the share code for this number is two seven five four. Two seven five four is the recorded is the share code for this specific meeting. Yes, Marsha, I, I certainly identified into your story uh, the progressive nature of it, uh, how it deteriorated after every facet of your life, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, within your family. Uh, you know, every facet of your life uh, was touched by the illness or disease, and every facet of your life, uh, as you described, deteriorated because of it, and I certainly related to that. I also uh, related to uh, your binge on on um, the children's aspirin. I, too, plowed through a bottle of baby aspirin at the age of three because I enjoyed that flavor that it offered me. Um, and I, thank God, relate to the progressive nature of your recovery, where every facet of your life has been improved upon, elevated, and touched by these 12 steps that you implemented in your life. Uh, every every part of your life has uh from your story has um, become alive and, uh, you know, the grace of God is, is evident as you told your story and it was very, very moving and I, I thank you for giving so much of yourself. I'm going to close now unless there are any other questions that anyone might have. You can press star one to unmute. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Okay, well, that with that, uh, Marsha, again, thank you so much for giving so much of yourself this morning, offering a message of hope, a message of possibility. This is what happens when we take this book and we implement these steps, not just for those who want it, as Marsha said, not just for those who need it, for those who do it. So thank you very much. I'm going to close this Vision for You speakers meeting with the way that Vision for You closes their meetings, and that's with page 164 in our big book. Then I invite you uh, all 
after the recording to um, say the serenity prayer together. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.